Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. Talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we put them all together, the book would be about a 1,000 pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, We're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Foundation, now running the Finding Genius podcast. I have Sui Hang. Uh, he's a professor, part of the Institute for Systems Biology, which is a nonprofit. And we're going to talk about uh, the complexity of living things and cancer and a few related topics. So thank you for coming. How are you doing? Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, very good. Tell me about, first tell me about the Institute a little bit. What's the mission? And then what do you do specifically there? Yeah, so the Institute... Uh founded by Lee Hood and others. Lee Hood, who is uh, one of the main, you know, innovator of DNA sequencing technology. And the idea was to look at entire systems in biology, as opposed to in the last 20 years, we have been, you know, worked down into analyzing genes and molecular pathways one at a time. We take a more, you know, broader approach of systems as a whole, you know, this idea of holism, but still being aware of that, at the end, you still have genes that need to be analyzed, but you want to integrate everything and it should be transdisciplinary. And uh, so we're in Seattle, we collaborate with many institutions, academic. Okay, so it's not just a gene focus. What are some other levels or parts of biology that you think is important to focus on when you're studying and researching something? Well, the organism, right? Initially, biology started with the organism, studying entire organs, organism, and we want to apply that to medicine. Of course, everybody knows about holistic medicine and we need to look at the whole thing. But on the other hand, the last 20 years, just amazing success in gene sequencing and viewing your genome and DNA as the blueprint and which determines everything. So there's these two worlds that are 
conflicting with each other, right? And we want to unite them at the end to serve medical purposes, wellness and human health. Right? On the one hand, we all talk about should exercise and eat well. On the other hand, you have genes, you can sequence and figure out everything that you would occur to you in terms of health. So we want to unite these two worldviews, so to see the whole, but also the parts, to know that the whole is more than the sum of its parts, but uh, also carefully analyze and uh, categorize the parts, the molecular parts. Makes sense. Okay. So so what do you, um, your duties are a professor, like who do you teach at the Institute? And are you also a researcher? Yeah, mostly researchers, almost entirely now. And uh, my personal approach to research, we all try to contribute to uh, understanding human biology and then diseases. But my personal view, and that's why I am at the Systems Biology Institute, is to take the uh, you know, the complexity science approach and use that to understand biology. So human body is a complex system and the many, many features come from a complex system that I think the dissection of the organism into genes and gene sequencing uh, loses. So this podcast is also about complex systems and life is a complex system. So we try to take that approach. And within that, focusing on as a manifestation of complexity as opposed to, you know, consequence of mutation. Right. Do you, do you, like, why do you choose to focus on cancer personally? Has it affected someone you know or you? Or oh, yeah, that's a reason? good question. Um, it just, it's kind of natural if you focus on, on complexity because it's so universal. I belong to those who say cancer is a disease and not many diseases, like many people say when they're frustrated that every cancer is different. So, so you know, as a scientist interested in fundamental approaches in science, we're interested in unifying principles. And they clearly are unifying principles in that. Uh, I think we yeah, that's use, excellent. You know, what, what do you see as the universe universing, sorry, you see unifying. as the unifying <laughs> principle? Oh, there are many. There are many details also that makes it hard to come up with one drug, right? That's not what I mean. It's much more profound. Well, it's extremely strong, powerful thing, right? Unfortunately, it defies almost anything we throw at it. It uh, occurs across the animal kingdom, and especially among mammals. Every you know, cows and dogs and cats they all have similar cancer frequency, 20, 30 percent. And it gets less and less in more primitive organisms. It's a manifestation of life, I would say. And we deal with that during evolution, but it's there. So it's something very fundamental. And so one of my questions is, why is there cancer first? As opposed to how can we cure it? Do you you think that cancer is is a separate life form? And if so, when there's one cancer cell, is it a separate life form? Or does there need to be a hundred or a million or a billion? At what point is it a, you know, an organism unto itself, if you think that at all? Yeah, it's a good question. It's kind of eerie to, to think that way. And I know it is Tasmanian David, you know, right, where cancer cells can be planted. I actually don't think it as a separate life form, but as a very, very strong manifestation of robustness of your body, of your body's ability to repair itself, to regenerate. And uh, it's, it's just like many diseases, it's just a reconfiguration of all the mechanisms that makes us strong and robust, but in a wrong way. So it's a missed repair, maladaptation, as we can call it. But if you think, okay, so, I mean, like everyone has a microbiome. Yeah. And I wouldn't say the E. coli inside me are me, yet they are. They're a part of me. Yeah. And the, you know, the C. difficile inside me 
can be both beneficial or pathogenic depending yes. on their numbers and you know their genetics. So why is it so hard for people to say that cancer could be a separate life form? You know, I know because, that yes. again, supposedly all our somatic cells are, are unified towards working for us, but would it be so strange to say that cancer is its own life form at some point? Yeah, no, it, it, it's a good view, but I think it, it takes advantage of a lot of biological processes that you need to stay alive. But it, it's kind of a separate life form in the sense that it just harnesses all principles of biology to stay alive. In that sense, yes. But and you know, unlike the microbiome, of course, I don't think there's a benefit of having cancer cells, but there's a benefit of having the uh, genetic ability that cancer cells use to fix DNA or whatever, or, or you know, to uh, control the immune system and so to invade. Those are all capabilities that you need gotcha. to develop. But I'm not sure that it's a separate life form or not. How do you think cancer first starts? Some people say, you know, random mutation and then the cell keeps dividing, but I have a feeling that it's a continual forced adaptation that becomes a maladaptation by a group of cells in a tissue. What are your thoughts? Yes, you're right. So I'm actually quite radical in terms of also thinking, right? I don't think it's just mutation, random mutation, and then a cell becomes malignant and it's over, it's selection. I think most few people think it's as simple. You're right, it's, it's a continuous process and maladaptation is, is a key word. But I would say that um, mutations play a role that is a absolutely necessary nor sufficient. So cancer is a disease of the tissue. That's point number one. Point number two, it is a, a failed attempt to fix a tissue due to a, a chronic or a few time lesion. And you know, you have regeneration, we all have regeneration and regeneration and wound healing stops when the tissue is reconstituted, right? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But if that doesn't happen, then keeps continuing because the signals fix something is still there. And then at some point it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, but you don't fix it right. And then the uh, architecture is disturbed and then the disturbed architecture sends signal to fix more and so on. And I think that is what cancer is. So it's a tissue disease. And many people, not the majority, but there's an increasing group of people think, thinking that way. And it's a term of a cancer field, which a particular tissue which is subjected to this maladaptation is prone to uh, generate tumor because of continuous inflammation and regeneration attempt. And every time you cell divide in a wrong context, then your DNA replication is not perfect, and then you accumulate mutation. So it's just many multiple, you know, positive feedback loops linked together, and then your genome instability creates more mutation. Your mutation can be selected for cells that divide faster, and that destroys tissues and this attempt to fix the tissue, which typically makes the tissue even 
more proliferate and uh, the signal to terminate the whole process is missing because the tissue is incomplete, it's not in a proper form and so on. So this is classical case of a runaway positive feedback loop by climate change or so whatever. Okay. So what do you refer back to the hallmarks of cancer paper yeah. that came out, I believe, 2000? That, that yes. probably would be like a guiding document for you, right? No, it's, ex- well, it's a guiding document for all of us on the fringe who are bashing the mainstream. Uh, it's true. I mean, it's the facts in the paper are correct, right? And it's a nice category, but that's exactly what we think we shouldn't think of. For example, a lot of people, the hallmark, just for those that don't know, is when cancer progress, it acquires new properties like start to, cells start to be able to migrate and to invade, triggers new blood vessels and triggers inflammation and, and so on and immune responses. These are hallmarks. And people tend to dissect things into these well-characterizable properties. And then they try to figure out a mutation that allows this hallmark to be manifest. But I don't think that's a necessarily so. A, a more profound theory is what is the unifying principles of this hallmark. And I think it's pretty obvious that all the hallmarks are maladaptation or a reuse in a wrong context and in a wrong configuration of all the processes that you normally need to develop into an organism from a single cell and that you also normally need to repair, to regenerate, for example, to close the wound. All these processes are there. They're very robust and they're hardwired in you, in every genome. And then you have lesions and then something goes wrong and those processes are unleashed and they cannot stop. So that's more my view, more holistic view, but acknowledging the uh, elementary process. I gotcha. Do you think cells have any level of cognition, no matter how limited or how alien? Yeah, interesting question. We can also ask whether humans have level of cognition and animals and do, you know, fish feel pain, right? I I don't think so. They are very sophisticated. And very often we uh, mistake a very complicated system as if they had some cognition, right? You all know the game of life is computer structures, programs, where you can invent some cells and endow them with some properties like every time you meet something you stop or you turn left or right and with multiple of these agents together then amazing things happen and i think that's probably what's going on so it looks like they have their own mind but they don't okay so all right so you don't think that they have their own mind do they i mean they have homeostatic drive individual cells and they do seem to act collectively like like in a tumor this this is why i ask you like a tumor you know it it tries to, I mean, the cells in a tumor seem to be signaling each other, even though they're heterogeneous. Yes, and it's it's yes. organized chaos, but it's still organized. I mean, there is a tumor mass and it tries yes. to get blood vessels to grow to it. It somehow decides or knows when to break off and form metastases. And, you know, well, supposedly it, primaries true. communicate with metastases to extracellular vesicles. So do you think there's agency there? What do you think is there? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, agency is a pseudo-agency, if you will. It's exactly like evolution, you know. Things adapt. It's amazing what happens with evolution, right? These adaptations, it's just stunning how birds adopt to uh, hypoxia, those that fly high, and, and things just adapt because of random change and selection. And that happens just a lot. And that really look very much like uh, a cognition. On the other hand, you can say some of your brain, when you learn, are similar. They adapt by selecting, you know, the circuits that works best. So 
the probably very similar phenomenon. And then, of course, no one enters a discussion of awareness. We don't need to. So very complicated things appear as if they have agency. That's my take. I know it's very philosophical. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, no, no problem. So what are you studying in particular about cancer? What facets are you looking at and trying to determine? Well, the most shocking thing last few years is that I summarize it as uh, you shall not kill cancer cells if you want to cure a tumor. Sounds paradoxical, but I think it's true. And one reason is you never get to kill 100% of a cell. If you could kill 100% of tumor cells, I agree, you might be able to eliminate, but you cannot, right? So you have 10, or 100 million cells in a tumor, in a small tumor, 10 to the 8. If you kill 99.9, you still have, you know, hundreds of thousands of cells, right? So it's very, very hard, you know, this diminishing return, meaning that you always will uh, have surviving cells, no matter how hard you try. And now here is our insight, and many people have observed the same thing. The surviving cells after therapy, after irradiation of chemo, they are different because they actually underwent the near-death stress. And they are stressed by all the neighbors who die. And just, just that alone makes them more malignant. As I said before, they kind of think, if I may use terms, theo- theological terms, so they notice that something is wrong and they try to fix the tissue. And the surviving cells almost invariantly switch to a uh, regenerative mode, so, so-called stem-like state. And they start to rebuild the, the tissue, but they do it in the wrong way. And that's why tumor always comes. So we summarize that phenomenon as, uh, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. It's like if you're a tumor cell and then somebody comes with a, you know, chemical weapon to kill all your your neighbors, your other tumor cells, and you survive, you, you are a different entity. You become stronger because, not because you were selected for, it's not a Darwinian selection of those that happen to be more resistant, but you also change as a unit. And that plasticity that individual cells become more malignant, I think that makes it so powerful that tumors almost always come. And that's what we study. Do you think that um, as, so in order for a cancer to grow, it looks like there's two paths, either the cancer cells keep dividing and more and more are created that way, or cancer cells somehow signal and co-opt normal healthy cells into becoming cancer cells. Do you think that both are at play or only one mechanism? The second mechanism that you say is actually very fascinating. I, I don't know that it has been definitely shown to be the case. What you're right is cancer cells talk to each other and talk to the normal cells around it and make the normal cells around it to support a cancerous tissue. That's why I said at the beginning, cancer is a tissue. So the cells, you know, so-called stromal cells, the supporting cells that you have in every tissue, they are different in cancer cells because of the signals coming from I'm not sure whether they alone can be regarded as tumor cells because if you would take those supporting cells that get that was under the influence of tumors, if you would take them and implant them in a, a mouse, they wouldn't necessarily create tumor on their own by dividing, but they could direct the uh, normal cells to become cancer cells and support them. So this has also been shown. Hmm. So well, amazing. what's weird is um, in, in, in primary tumor sites, it looks like there may be co-option, you know, of healthy, healthy cells by cancer cells. But in metastatic sites, it seems like there's less of a co-option, but maybe a niche preparation, yes, you know, yeah. a feathering of the nest. So like, you know, if liver cancer goes to the brain, the brain doesn't turn into 
cancer cells, uh, liver cancer is in the brain, but yes. I guess they can't go as far to signal to the point where they, they change the cells to become cancers. That I'm not sure. I don't know whether you get that. If there is, then I haven't seen that much discussed. But you are right with the co-option. So the cancer definitely, the liver, the liver cell, cancer cells, which metastasize somewhere else, would definitely co-opt the environment, normal cells, endothelial cells, like the blood vessel cells, to support them. And the, and the fibroblasts, the support cells, would become a different type that is then more similar to those in wound healing. Again, tissue thinks it has to repair something and would then support the tumor cells. So that happened. And so again, it, it comes back to the tumor being a disease of the tissue. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, if you think about it, that example, that in a, at a primary site, there appears to be more influence and a more total conversion of healthy cells to cancer cells. I mean, that comes from cell-to-cell communication. So I would think that the cancer cells would have a sense of self versus other. And even the communication, if you can call it, let's say, a language, the way in which they communicate, they're able to communicate more effectively with same cell type cells versus non-same cell type because the co-option yeah, was yeah. further yeah. along. Yeah, no, not, not necessarily. It's a very good point that you, you bring up. So that's a well-known distinction, this so-called heterotypic communication and homotypic communication. Homotypic means you are you communicate with your own, right? You, you know a tumor is self-dividing. And so if you divide, you become two daughters and so on. And if every time you divide, you maintain your property. And let's say the, the mother cell had the uh, property of being a emitter of a signal, and it also has the receiving apparatus, so-called receptor, right? Then all the daughter would have the ability to send a signal and to receive that signal. And that's called autocrine uh, communication. And that happens. And you can imagine if that communication means if you receive this signal, then divide. Then you get run away, you know, exponential, hyper exponential growth. So that happens. But it's very easy for cancer to talk to other cells that are not like themselves. And it's a matter of semantics, whether you want to call this a uh, sense of self or not, because during development, Cells talk to each other all the time with across different cell types, right? Your liver cells has to talk to immune cells to not, you know, attack me, right? Or a developing organ has to talk to uh, blood vessel cells to build a blood vessel. These communications happens all the time. What are you trying to figure out very specifically with your research at this moment? Yeah, I'm interested in, in very fundamental properties of cancer, as I mentioned, but hoping, of course, to derive new therapeutic, therapeutic approaches and they would all be surrounding, influencing the entire tissue as opposed to killing cancer cells. I think that's the main thing. So we know inflammation plays a role, as I said, because cancer is a wound that never heals, an inflammation that never stops, a regeneration that keeps going. So we want to stop those things locally. And that means that sometimes you have to look at targeting support cells and not the tumor itself. We know killing tumor cells is a bad thing. We try to avoid that because for every tumor cell you kill, a non-kill neighbor would become more aggressive. And so it becomes a double-edged sword, like many things in medicine. And it means that the, the opportunity, the window of opportunity is very small because if you create too much mess in the tumor, there's too much stimulus to tell the tissue you need to fix something. And that's why it's very hard. It's a, it's a narrow window, a narrow optimization task. And I think that we need to do. Yeah, but when, when does a primary tumor decide to metastasize is it a is it a you know is there a quorum sensing that goes on or is there the development of 
a hypoxic or an anoxic zone and certain cells say, we can't live here, we got to go somewhere else? Or is there another reason that metastasis form? So if you understood that, maybe that gives you some context on, you know, I was going to ask you, why, why do cells become more aggressive if neighbors yes. have been killed? Why would that happen? Is it because of the neighbors being killed and them signaling that there's something yes. wrong? Or is it Absolutely. the cells yeah. themselves being damaged yet recovering? Both. That's exactly what you said, both. A damaged cell that recovers is more malignant. We see this now in single cell analysis. So if you take a million cells, put chemotherapy on them, but don't kill all, then the non-kill cells are stronger, they emerge stronger, even without mutation. That's not point number one. So they decide so to, so, uh, to, do, to become stronger, and that's hardwired. That's how homeostasis works. And the other is we also see every time a, a, a cell dies, a tumor cell dies, it sends so many signals to neighboring cells that survive, and that signal is you need to divide because you need to replace the tissue. That's a normal signal you know, for which we're hardwired. So there is coordination amongst cancer cells then. Yeah, they absolutely. Are acting, exactly. But they're acting in their own interest, not the surrounding tissue's interest. So yes. essentially, because yes. they have self-interest that is not aligned with the organismal whole, they really are a separate organism. Yes, in that goals. sense, yes, yes. I, I know what you mean. In, in that sense, yes, that's correct. But they, they cannot grow outside of the body, unless, unlike right. other stuff. Yes. In that sense, well, they, they have their own mind because they don't subjugate their behavior to the good of the body. That's correct. But, yeah, but here's what I want to ask you. So if I understand tumors are heterogeneous and I give chemo, but I give a cocktail that really is, again, a mixture of so many different substances that I kill 99% of the tumor cells, now I would think there would be very few left. So no matter how you know emboldened or strong or aggressive they are, now there's just very few of them, and so they'd have less of a voice in the tissue ecology. And I would think the immune system and that now the supermajority of the remaining healthy cells may be able to take them out. So maybe Absolutely. it's not an all or nothing. You know, like, what, yes. why do you think that some cancers appear to be totally gone yet come back and others only get beaten back a little bit and come back? And why do some not come back? What do you think is, governs that dynamic? Yeah, you're totally right. I think details, the, the devil is in the details, right? So if only few cells are left, if you're lucky, they won't come back or it takes very long to come. So it's just a numbers game. And uh, if the only, we know sometimes a single cell can grow back to a tumor. Sometimes, as you know, the saying, it takes a village. So they have to be a, a critical mass of different people. Diversity is important, not only in our society, but it's a true fundamental mathematical fact. If they're diverse, they support each other. That's called the autocatalytic set, according to Stuart Kaufman. And they support each other by mutual support. And none of the cell individually would have survived. And these kind of things are very robust. That's how ecosystems evolve. So, and they eventually come back. Uh, but sometimes you're lucky, right? And you, as you said, combination therapy might be able to do it, but might not. It's, it's a double-edged sword. Again, you take a risk if you do combination therapy. You are stressing the cells more, and if some survive, they're even more malignant. So we know that because it's not working most of the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Is there a part of the body that is the most tumor-like of any part of the body, meaning that it contains heterogeneous cells in close proximity, and it just, you know, in, in however ways you want to characterize it, most resembles a tumor? Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, well, the reproductive organs in the cells have 
this potency of being really plastic and they can uh, there's some similarity to tumors right and you know tumors have more genes activated that make them similar to more embryonic cells but now in the adult body uh, i would say maybe the blood that's why we have relatively blood or, or organs that divide fast have some similarity with tumors but they are well controlled under normal physiological conditions there's a good homeostasis so in check. Okay, I just didn't know again if, if anyone knows in the body if there's an area that most closely resembles what tumors look like, but it's healthy. Well, yeah, that's a good point. We know that this exists. You, know, you probably have heard the mutations in tumor cells. We uh, uncover them by sequencing the genes of a tumor cell, right? And now people start to sequence normal tissues, just normal skin, for example, which exposed to UV, which creates mutation. We are just screaming out of mutation signals, even in normal cells. That's a fact. Very strange that many normal cells have mutations, even the same that you find in tumors. You also find that these mutations in the normal cells confer a uh, growth advantage, you know, the selection that they grow more, uh, yet they are in the community of normal cells and they behave normally. So that is now a more and more common finding. Going back to a little bit earlier question, what makes a tumor or a cancer cell, quote-unquote, stronger after chemo or more aggressive? Like, you know, if you look at it on a genetic level, what does that translate to? Or oh, yeah, if you look yeah, at it in yeah, other yeah. ways, what, is that, what does that mean? Yes. They uh, essentially revert back to more immature and ancient states, like in embryonic states. Those cells are more robust. They uh, tolerate more hypoxia because an embryo doesn't have blood vessels. They also, as an embryo, they... Uh, are better in hiding away from the immune system. Uh, they have to do that, right, in, during pregnancy. They grow faster. They are more versatile, right? You know, in embryo, if an early embryo falls apart in two pieces, you get twins. So they're very robust in regenerating things. And that's, these genes are induced. They are activated by chemotherapy. Okay. Has anyone compared neoplasms that are benign versus, you know, tumors? and look for the differences? Like, why would you have, uh, you know, I guess, like, let's say an endometriosis tissue growing and invading other areas, yet it's not cancerous. Like, what, what does it mean to be cancerous? Yes, very good tissue is growing. Yes, unfortunately, very little work on that. And I don't know why. It's really rational, but you're absolutely right. You know, in medical school, you keep learning about B9 and malignant tumors, and you learn to, if somebody has a bump, to distinguish these two. But in research... There's almost no comparison. The comparison is typical, the tumor with the normal tissue. And I think one reason is because there's no equivalent uh, B9 tumor that are there. Only few tissues actually have B9 nodules that are there. Many don't have that. So it's hard to compare. I think that's probably a reason. And also in mice, and so we just don't talk about that. In humans, you have only a handful of B9 tumors, right? Fibroids in the skin, you have in the liver sometimes these nodules, but there are not many. So that's almost non-existent in cancer research. It's strange, but that's, yeah, it's weird. It's yeah, you're right. Like, like I had, I had thyroid cancer, and yes, some people well, thyroid are is another one. Yes, which well, no, I'm saying nodules. like, like yeah, I, right. Some people have benign nodules. I yes, didn't unfortunately, yes. but yes, what they should do is ones that have been reset, you know, resected thyroids with nodules. They should keep the ones that are benign versus cancerous and sequence both and look and see what's the difference. That might Absolutely. Be I'm sure somebody has done that. Yeah, thyroid is a good example of, of an organ that makes these benign nodules. 
And a key question also is, do they become malignant? People are interested in that, and, and that's a very interesting question. Yeah. What questions do you have that really puzzle you? You know, what are you thinking about a lot that you just, you know, let's, we can speculate for a few minutes, but like, what do you think that uh, really puzzles the heck out of you? Well, now it's really from single cell sequencing, we learn so much, so many counterintuitive things. One is, this is your last example that you bring up, these B9 nodules, right? We find them a lot if we would look, we just don't discover them. The big question is, do they have a tendency to become malignant? Should people be worried about or not? And the textbook view is they can progress to malignant tumors, but depending on tissue, sometimes it's rare, sometimes it's not rare, and sometimes they almost never do it. Sometimes they do, and we need to monitor them. But the newest, newest finding is that in those tissues where these small nodules that are benign become malignant, the malignant tumor is actually not a descendant genetically of the early benign nodule. That's fascinating. That tells you that, again, it's the entire tissue which is pathological and which creates or allows this tendency for for tumors to form first malignant and then um, benign and later malignant. And those two are, as we now can see in few cases, but more and more, they're genetically not related. And that's puzzling, and that points back again to entire tissues being sick in some ways, such that tumors are more likely to arise. So it's not just a mutation turning one cell into a malignant one and that proliferate. So I think, I think that's the most puzzling thing. Okay. Has anyone tried to take a tumor and single cell sequence, like, and create a spatial diagram of the mutations, you know, from the center outwards, yes. let's say it's yes. a ball, a one centimeter ball. Has that been done? And if so, what's been observed? Yes, very good point. That's exactly what everybody trying to do now. It's the most important thing to do. But we don't know what to do with that, right? So what we can do now is uh, sequence every cell in terms of the genes that are active, the transcriptome. We can also do the genome and which mutations. It's harder to map that into a spatial map, but those appear now. The question is what to make of those, and the big question. You see all these colorful uh, publications, but no much idea behind we really need to go back to think about things. Oh, so is is it very difficult to do, or has it just yeah. not been done, or or what? It's or difficult. Has the data made no sense. Well, no, everything is difficult. But you know, if something is new, there would be a company jump on it and provide a simple tool to do it, so that everybody can do it. But I think most the limiting factors are the expensive. You know, sequencing cells is expensive. It's a couple of dollars per cell, and you, you need to sequence thousands of cells per tissue and you need to do hundreds of tissues for hundreds of patients so it gets expensive quickly you could start with one yeah but one doesn't tell you much right so it's just so diverse as you said they're so heterogeneous you need to uh, people have done one and two and then the mother cell and the two daughter cells how different they are but we need now to sequence thousands of cells to uh, to get a sense of what's happening and that's expensive yeah. But it's getting cheaper. So, you know, it's a very exciting time and we get those data. And the other limitation is, I think we are, we need ages of big data, but, uh, you know, very little knowledge and really little thing. I think that's a very limiting. Well, if you did have billion cells and you were able to do single cell sequencing on them, yeah. could you could you tell which ones came from which cells? Could you tell the lineages yeah. Yeah. and trace time. them back to one? Yeah, or being, one? Yes, absolutely. That's being done now. And what you find is that new families emerge. Uh, sometimes you have multi-clonal tumors where, you know, two grand, two uh, ancestor cells or more, but 
typically you have a stem, like the, the, the common ancestor, and then a family tree, and then you have suddenly after therapy a new family arises and so on. But uh, so that we have, that's a lineage tree. But it's like a pedigree of your family. Having that alone doesn't tell you much if you don't know the personality of individual people, right? And that's a problem. Is there a single ancestor or does it not appear to be? Yeah. Does cancer um, start from a single cell? Does it show that or does it show instead that it's multiple cells? Well, sometimes you cannot go back to the first one because of mutation, but it looks like for most tumors, it starts with a single cell. So it's clonal, but then there are tumors which are multiclonal. And that again goes back to my, my notion of tumors as a disease of tissue that increases the propensity to start a tumor, right? So that, that happens also. People with breast cancer have a higher chance to get breast cancer on the other side, and yeah. that's the metastasis, right? So, what about um, looking at the clonal lineage of metastases versus a primary? Has that been done in comparison? Yeah, yeah, that has been done a lot. What yes. Been observed yes. there. Then, what's the difference? You, you can you can track clonality absolutely, right? But you can also track that it can come from multiple clones. Uh, what we now know is very often the metastasis is seeded not by a single cell, but by it's almost like a you know, if a group of people emigrate and go into a new country and become settlers, you need a group that support each other. So that happens a lot. Then it's not a clonal origin, but it's a group that travels together in the bloodstream. That's seen a lot. But what's the tendency? Do our primaries more likely to arise from a single cell and metastases only arise from multiple cells? That I don't know, but uh, I just describe to you the observation that very often metastasis, the multiple cells travel as a clump in the blood. So this is purely mathematical question. Um, I think the general notion and probably most data show that tumors are clo- of clonal origin, the primary, because it, it started once, one time, with the exception of a couple of tissues like in the thyroid, in the prostate, you can have multi-clonal tumors, and it depends on um, on the genetic markup of a person. Some people have a tendency to make tumors and have multiple tumors, multi-clonal tumors. Is there any correlation where if a tumor starts from a single cell, it tends to be more or less heterogeneous versus from multiple clonal lineages? Or, you know, what's, what's again, what's different about them? Are they more yeah, resistant? That's a very good point. Uh, I, I don't know. You know. This is just a new biology. I don't know whether there, there are consequences for treatment. What we know is the heterogeneity heterogeneity and diversification is so powerful, it probably supersedes the initial, uh, you know, situation where the tumor is clonal. And you have to also be aware of, as a tumor grows, there's also many, uh, it's like animal kingdoms, a lot of extinction. Some clones take over. We don't know whether it's due to competition and those that take over are fitter or not. But it's just, you see the entire tree and it's, it's fascinating. What is clear is that there are always multiple Sublineages existing, uh, coexisting. It's very rare that one clone is so strong takes over. That. What about after chemo? Do you get the same distribution of clonal lineages, or does it reduce the amount or increase yeah, the amount of yeah. different families? It on a super interesting question, and data coming in now exactly on that question. Uh, very often, you see you see a change. It's clear. The classical textbook expectation that one clone goes through a bottleneck and that is one that are resistant and comes back and take over is actually rare. You often see a reduction of number of clones, but sometimes you see, you know, a mirror of what was before almost, which means the selection pressure was not high enough and the tumor just changed in some way. 
to become resistant without changing lineages. So that also happens. But that's exactly, you know, I don't want to make any, you know, definitive statement. That's what people are looking into now. You see all kinds of... Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Sweet. what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, basically, our papers are old-fashioned, right? I have, a, I have a medium blog where I write about these things. You know, ideas that traditional journals don't want to publish are there. Um, yeah. Okay. So those are the best. All right. Well, very good. I appreciate it for coming. Yeah. Thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast and being willing to speculate. Yes, exactly. Good. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.